You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible is all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find a campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. Jesus says that we're going to always have the poor. And sometimes I like to think why he says that. Because for me, the poor is a seasoning in the world that gives a, spe- a special flavor because I have found so much beauty here. It seems like behind that pain, to face it and take the time to just be present, I have found treasures, just beauty. At Lemonade International, we see ourselves as the voice of the people of La Limonada uh, to the people of the United States. We see ourselves as a support structure uh, for Vidas Planas and the, the, the ministry and the organization um, that Tita leads. We hold them up through financial support and administrative support so that they can do the work that they're called to. When someone enters La Limonada for the first time, there's so much to take in. Your senses are overwhelmed. The sights, the sounds, and the smells of a community of 60,000 plus people who are living in a ravine that runs through the middle of Guatemala City. We started working with the gangs and the thieves, and it was uh, tough and hard work. And at some point, God asked uh, asked us to work with the kids to prevent them. I want to fight to protect the children, to maintain the pureness and the, the innocence the children have. So our focus is prevention. That's why we have the academies, but um, to be present in the community. When they see Tita coming down, people come and gather uh, around her, and they smile, and they look happy, and they call her to their homes. Uh, People feel, I think, relieved. There are no words, no actions, no psychology. Anything, anything is gonna heal them and help them and make them feel well. But love, everything we do, if we don't love them, it's not gonna work. One of the things that I think is really unique about Lemonade International is that we are focused in one community in the world. And we empower local leaders who work in solidarity with the people of La Limonada. Being in this community, I have learned more than 1,000 people has passed away. So I know the need is today, and if I come tomorrow, maybe the person is not going to be there anymore. If we don't prevent somebody today, tomorrow is going to be raped. The need is today and is right now. Tita and the leaders in La Limonada are doing amazing work. We joyfully invite you to partner with us in supporting them to change the lives of the people of La Limonada.
Welcome to Forest Hill Church, One Church, Six Campuses. As you probably know, each one of our campuses has a local partner internationally. It's in the Caribbean area for the purpose of having the ability to reach them quickly. Uh, the South Park campus does Honduras. Um, the Ballantyne campus does Haiti. Fort Mill does Columbia. And the Waxhaw campus has adopted Guatemala. And Guatemala City, where Limonada has their ministry that they're partnering with, has the largest slum in all of the Caribbean area. And they're building a school right in the middle of that slum where they're praying every one of the children who goes to that school will have all sufficiencies met uh, clothing, uh, food, their educational needs, and that's going to be their partner as all of our campuses do so, and it's just going to be exciting to see how they make an impact upon that nation in Guatemala City particularly, and we praise God for that. And by the way, speaking of the Waxhaw campus, let me show you a picture of uh, the Waxhaw campus. This is my dear friend Mike Bowler and me standing in front of the new campus, which opens up today. Would you give God the glory for that? Isn't that wonderful? And you can see how God works through the tallest and the shortest of people in the kingdom of God. So Waxhaw opens up today. We praise God for that. After a couple of years of planting and planning, it's now an official church, and it opens up today, uh, December the 11th. We praise God for that. Also wanted to mention the book that I've most recently written is available on all the campuses. If you can, please make a donation as you take the book. It's a study of the Gospel of John in devotional form. We're going to use this book in our study from January through April, and if you take the book, just make a small donation. There's a way to do that at each table, and all of the money goes to our Christmas Eve offering, which, as you heard last week, is for Pastor Maurice's new church work in New Cairo, Egypt, that we're partnering with him and United World Mission for the purpose of planting a church in the most important city in all the Mideast, right in the strategic stronghold of Islam. Now, today what I want to do is to begin a message, a series indeed, connecting Thanksgiving giving to Christmas. Oftentimes we experience Thanksgiving and then forget about it one time a year and don't realize it's very much connected to the entire Christmas season. So I'm going to do a shorter message today. In fact, Marilyn and I are in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Our son Michael had the privilege of representing the United States, swimming uh, with the United States team in the World Championships, so we're there. But I want to do a, about a 20-minute message, then hand it off to the campus pastors and let them do a practical application on Thanksgiving and how it relates to the cradle and Christmas time. So let's move into the message about Thanksgiving today. Uh, did you know that Thanksgiving must have a direct object? For all of you who've had some kind of grammatical studies, you know a direct object is what uh, some sense of a verb modifies. And if you give thanks, you've got to give thanks to something. I would even say to someone, we'll look at that in just a second. But when you give thanks, there is a direct object that is necessary in order for thanksgiving to occur. Now, now think about it. Someone has once said we're all built on the shoulders of someone else. I know in my life that I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for a lot of different people, like my mom and dad and my wife, Marilyn, and many of you who've supported me through the years and giving me opportunities to succeed. So my success is built on the shoulders of many of you and other people, so I have to give thanks to others when I think of my own success. But even think of it in a deeper realm, okay? The next beat of your heart, to whom do you give thanks? Well, you have to give thanks to God because you had nothing to do with that. Uh, think of the next ingestion of air into your lungs. Where did that come from? 
If you give thanks for your life, you've got to give thanks to the one who gave you the ability to breathe. That has to be God himself. So thanksgiving demands a direct object. And I would suggest that really at the heart of all thanksgiving should be giving thanks to God who gave us our friends and our family members and others who allow us to succeed, but also who've given us this very body, this very life to be able to succeed. So thanksgiving demands a direct object, and that's especially true with salvation. Uh, The cradle is God's initiative to come into this world as a human being, knowing our sin condition is so hopeless we can't save ourselves. There's no way any of us can ever do enough to earn the favor of God and ever be accepted by him in his perfection, in his holiness. It has to be done for us. Remember, the two major world's religions are do and done. All the other world's religions are what we must do to please God, whether it's obeying the Ten Commandments, obeying the laws of Allah and Islam, obeying the basic laws of animism in Africa, whatever it might be, we've got to do something to earn God's favor. The only religion that teaches that that's impossible is the Christian faith. It says we can't do enough. We can never, because of this sin condition all of us have, this selfishness with which we're born. We are, aren't we? I mean, come on. Did any of us have to teach our children how to be selfish? Did we? They were born that way. They knew how to be selfish from day one. They knew how to say no as one of their first words. We are hopelessly lost in our sins and trespasses, and God knew that, so he came in Jesus, and he did for us what we can't do for ourselves. The cradle connected to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. What's the it? Our salvation. It's done for us. We can't do it. It's impossible in our sinful condition. God had to do it for us. It's done through Jesus Christ. So if that's true, if God is the author of salvation, if God's the one who initiated it by becoming one of us in that baby in the manger in Bethlehem and then grew up and died in his perfect condition on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and gives us the gift of eternal life, not by our works, not by what we do, but what's been done for us through Jesus Christ, if that's true, when we give thanksgiving for our salvation, for sure we give thanksgiving to the direct object of God himself, our Father who revealed himself to his, through his Son, Jesus, and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, those of us who believe. Now, when we were raising our kids, Marilyn and I, we, we taught them this little song that I bet you Many of you had taught to yourselves as well, and maybe you did with your children as well. It's, there are two little bitty words that can open any door with ease. One little word is, yeah, thanks, and the other little word is, please. So those two words, thanks and please, are powerful weapons to be used in life for success. Thanksgiving is so important. Now, what would you say to your children who grew up and never thanked you for anything, never thanked you for all the gifts you've given them, all the meals you supplied, all the clothes you put on their back, the roof you put over their head, the ability to succeed themselves. What would you call a child who never gave you thanks? You're right, a spoiled brat. That's what you would call that kind of a child because a child that grows up without thanksgiving is a spoiled brat. Well, the truth is I think the Father looks at all of us who don't give him thanks for all the multiple blessings that he has given us, especially thanksgiving regularly for salvation, thanksgiving for that cradle, for beginning the relationship with us by becoming one of us in Jesus. God would call us as our father spoiled brats if we don't ever give thanks to him. 
So I want to encourage all of us to give thanks for the multiple gifts we have and for the gift of salvation. And it begins by understanding the connection between thanksgiving and humility. You, you know, the greatest problem I have with people admitting they need a Savior is their confession that they're self-righteous, that they don't even need a Savior. That's probably the greatest sin of all. So you can have some really nice people out there in the world, but if they refuse to admit they're sinners, they've committed the ultimate sin of pride. They say that their life is sufficient for eternal salvation to occur. Humility is necessary for thanksgiving because humility recognizes we're nothing. Everything we have in life, again, especially our salvation, is a gift from God. So therefore, when we give thanksgiving, we are expressing the ultimate humility. We're saying, I'm nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. We're saying that I am totally dependent on God to supply my every need, especially eternal salvation. We are saying, hands in the ear, head bowed, I surrender to you, God. You're in control of everything. I'm not in control of anything. You oversee my life, and I thank you for all that I have been given, especially the gift of eternal salvation. So remember... You must have a direct object with thanksgiving, so it's thanksgiving to others who've helped you, but particularly to God, especially in the area of thanksgiving. You need to know if you don't give thanksgiving to God, that's the ultimate pride. It is the expression of a lack of humility. And indeed, the opposite of giving thanks at that point is grumbling. Ask yourselves very honestly today, how much of your time do you spend complaining and grumbling about your life? You know, when the Israelites were freed from the Egyptian captivity and God parted the Red Sea and freed them and they were placed on the other side of the ocean and the Egyptian army was swallowed into the sea, they immediately erupted into praise and thanksgiving. Uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, led the people in a celebration of song and thanksgiving. And then what's so interesting is almost immediately thereafter, when they didn't get the bread they wanted or the food they liked or needed the water they wanted to have, what did they do? They started grumbling, and they started murmuring, and they started complaining, and it really ticked God off. God didn't like it one bit. Why? It's the expression of a spoiled brat. God had done all these miracles for them, and he just wanted thanksgiving and praise. Paul said in Philippians 2.19, these powerful words, he said, do everything without grumbling or complaining. <laughs> jokingly looked up the word everything. I know you're sick of it. Hey, what does everything mean? It means everything, everything in your life, no matter what's going on, should be done without grumbling and complaining. And some of you are saying, but I've been through some pretty tough stuff that we'll address that next week, how to give thanks in all things. But we're to do everything without grumbling and complaining. So let me ask this question to you. Do you need a miracle? Do you need a Christmas miracle? Is something going on in your life with your job or your family and relationships, a physical dilemma, an emotional problem, whatever it might be, do you need a miracle? Do you need a supernatural intervention from God? Well, if so, I am convinced of this truth. Again, recognizing the, the empower and importance of thanksgiving in our lives, I am convinced that thanksgiving precedes God's miracles. Thanksgiving precedes God's miracles, and we see this particularly in the life of Jesus. Let me point out two illustrations for you right now. First of all, in John, the sixth chapter, Jesus is alone with his disciples trying to get a few moments of 
refreshment, renewal away from the crowds. But what happens? The crowds follow him. He had done so much for them with the healings and the feedings and all of that. They followed him. 5,000 men, which means probably around 12,000 people, considering women and children, were also present. And the disciples look at the multitudes coming around them when they're trying to get a few moments of refreshment. And they say to Jesus, look, they're, they're going to be hungry soon. It's getting on in the day. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you feed them. <laughs> Sensitively, right? You feed them. He was asking for them to figure out how to feed the 5,000 with no food. Well, they find a young boy with five loaves and two fish. And they bring the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. And then what's so fascinating is in John chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also the fish as much as they wanted. So Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, blessed them, gave thanks to heaven for what God had. Folks, don't ever look at what you've lost. Don't ever look at what's been stolen. Look at what you still have. Don't look at what you've lost. Look at what you still have. So Jesus didn't complain about only five loaves and two fish with 12,000 people. He gave thanks for what he had. And then he broke the bread, blessed the fish, and they started multiplying and, and, and multiplying and multiplying so that not only were the 12,000 fed, but there were 12 basketfuls left over. And I can't help but believe the young boy who brought in faith those five loaves and two fish and presented them to Jesus, I bet he was the one who took those 12 basketfuls left over home with him that evening. Can you imagine the face on his mother when he brought home the 12 basketfuls left over? Because the real hero of this story isn't even Jesus. I think it's the faith of the young boy. Nevertheless, the miracle didn't happen until Jesus gave thanks for what he had, and that's key. You see the same kind of illustration in John the 11th chapter. Let me tell you what's going on. In John 11, Jesus was away from his close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There were three people who kind of formed an earthly family for him. He, he went there to eat, rest, just be. It was a place of comfort. It, it was home sweet home, I think, for him. Well, he's away from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus with his disciples, several days' worth of journey, and he receives the news that his close friend Lazarus had died. And instead of rushing to the scene and maybe even doing a miracle there, he waits several days, several days. He doesn't return. And you can only imagine Mary and Martha and the others who are grieving over the loss of Lazarus wondering, where's Jesus? Where's his close friend? He has such power, maybe he could do something. Well, after several days, he comes, and, you know, Martha is one ticked-off lady at that point. She says to him, if you had just been here, if, if you had come sooner, Lazarus could still be alive today. And, of course, Jesus' heart of compassion is moved. He reminds Martha that God has a perfect time for everything, that God's delay is not his denial. Would you all say that with me? God's delay is not his denial. Though Jesus delayed for several days coming, that did not mean that Martha's request that he move on Lazarus and her behalf be denied. So Jesus hears her 
struggle. Here's her heart. And then we read in John 11, verses 41 through 43, these words. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I, folks, I thank you. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So after he heard Martha stating her heart's hurt, they took away the stone, and Jesus then offers a prayer to the Father in heaven. And what are the first words that flow out of his mouth? I thank you. I thank you. Thank you. And then he wanted the people to know that God heard every one of his prayers. And God hears every one of your prayers if you pray them in the name of Jesus. And he wanted them to see this miracle with Lazarus so that they would believe that the Father sent him. What's the Father sending Jesus into the world? That's Christmas time. That's the baby in the manger. That's the baby in the cradle. That's what we are celebrating at this time of year. It's called the incarnation. God becoming a human being. God putting on human flesh in Jesus. Jesus, totally divine and totally human at the same time. He wanted everyone who saw this miracle to realize that the Father had sent him. And then he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And then still bound up in all of his grave clothes, Lazarus staggers out of the tomb alive. A miracle from death to life had occurred. But dear friends, note what happened from Jesus' lips before the miracle occurred. What were the words that first flowed from his mouth in prayer to the Father before the miracle occurred? What was it? Father, I thank you. So just like with the feeding of the 12,000 people, Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks, and then the loaves and the fish multiplied. Just like with Lazarus, before he is brought back to life, Jesus thanks God. The truth is stated to us again and again throughout the Bible, and especially in the life of Jesus. In these two stories, thanksgiving precedes our miracles. Do you need a miracle today? Do you need a Christmas miracle again in your job, in your family, your relationships, your emotions, in your spirit, finances, whatever it might be? Do you need a miracle today? I can't speak for you, but I need one. I'm always asking God, please intervene on my behalf when I see no way that it can happen. Well, if that's your case today, begin with the power of thanksgiving. Make a thanksgiving list of all for which you have to be thankful, remembering just your next breath and the next beat of your heart, uh, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the friends you have, the family you possess. Start making a list of all the things for which you can be thankful. And do make sure you also include salvation. That's the greatest gift of all, isn't it? The fact that through Jesus and his entering the world through the cradle and then moving us to the cross and by the power of the resurrection, we have the absolute assurance that if we should die, we will be raised to new life again. In fact, in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said as a part of the Lazarus narrative, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never, ever die. So give thanks to God as the direct object for your salvation because 
You have eternal life and you'll never die if you believe in Jesus. You just take off these clothes and put on your resurrection body forever. At the moment, your heart stops beating. And it is a glorious promise from Almighty God. So make sure that if you need a miracle today, you begin with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving, especially during this time period, for the cradle. So what I want to do now is to turn all of this over to the campus pastors. On each campus, let them step forward and lead you in the next 15 or so minutes of giving thanks to God. What a privilege it is to be with you today. God bless you all. But remember, thanksgiving precedes all miracles. Campus pastors, God bless you. Take it now.